Well, good morning. I uh, hope you all had a good Thanksgiving. I'm going to be a little tested this morning because most of the people who sit here are gone. And so I'm going to be doing a lot of ping-ponging today, I think. Uh, as you can, you can probably tell, I'm dealing with a little bit of laryngitis this morning. And so I'm going to have some magic throat spray here in a second. Um, we're going to get through it. The Lord has never failed me on a morning when I've had laryngitis on the Lord's Day. Um, it may not be pretty, but we're going to... We're going to get through it, and what a wonderful thing to know that the power is not in the preacher, but in the Word of God. Amen? Amen, because if it were so, we'd be <laughs> it wouldn't be good. So, thankful for the power of God's Word. We'll turn in your Bible to Matthew chapter 18 as we continue through Matthew's Gospel. Matthew chapter 18 is where we'll be today. Matthew chapter 18, verses 6 through 9. Benjamin Franklin, the founding father, is famously known for saying that in this world, nothing is certain except death and taxes. Um, I think there's one more thing that Benjamin Franklin should have added to his list. There's nothing certain except death, taxes, and temptation. Temptation. Whether you're a Christian or not, you've experienced temptation. Whether you're old or whether you're young, whether you're a grandma or a grandpa or whether you're a kid, you've experienced temptation, that attractive draw to do what you're not supposed to do, right? That allure of sin. Maybe it's the temptation to gossip because you have a juicy tidbit. Maybe it's the temptation to lust over somebody. Maybe it's the temptation to overeat. Or maybe it's the temptation to vent in anger. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13 states that no temptation has overtaken you that's not common to man. In other words, there is no such thing as a unique temptation. Right? You are not alone. You are not um, you know, special in how you are tempted. Right? Everybody is tempted. And the temptations we face are faced by others. There is no temptation that is unique. We're all tempted in various ways and from various directions. The question is, what do you do when you're tempted? What do you do when you're tempted? Do you run towards that temptation? Do you run away from that temptation? Do you Take one little step away and maybe one little step towards it and then one step away and then two, two towards it until you're, you're finally there and it, it envelops you. What do you do when you are tempted? Well, in this morning's text, Jesus makes something abundantly clear. There is a serious weight of judgment upon those who tempt others on, on external sources of temptation. And there is a serious weight of judgment on those who do nothing to fight temptation, internal temptation. But yet at the same time, we're going to be reminded of what the rest of 1 Corinthians 10.13 says. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Let's read our text, verses 6 through 9. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin... It would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. 
And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. This is the word of God. Would you pray with me as we hear it this morning? Our Lord, we thank you for your word. And Lord, in so many places it provides great comforts for us, great encouragements, great promises. But Lord, there are other parts in your word that give us serious warnings. And such is the portion of your word that we come to this morning, a serious warning about the danger of sin and the necessity to fight temptation. And Father, we pray that you would bless your word this morning, Lord. That you would pour out your Holy Spirit to bless the word as it is preached, as it goes forth. That you would show us those areas where we are not fighting temptation like we should be, Lord. Those areas where we maybe cherish sin or those areas where we are allowing ourselves to be tempted. Father, would you make those things plain to us, but then show us that by your grace we can actually resist those things and fight those things. Father, I pray that you would help us to hear and in hearing, Lord, to do your word. I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, two major points for us this morning. Number one, the judgment upon external temptation in verses 6 and 7. Number two, the war against internal temptation, verses 8 and 9. <clears throat> now, last week we heard Jesus talk about true greatness in the kingdom of heaven. And, and Jesus defines true greatness uh, in, in the opposite way that our society defines greatness. If you remember, it's that childlike humility and dependence on God. That's what true greatness is. And as we come to our verses this morning, Jesus' teaching uh, continues. This is all part of the same discourse, but there's a transition in verse 6. And the discussion shifts to a different topic, to the topic of sin and temptation. Um, now, there's a couple points of clarification that I need to make this morning um, that will help us understand what Jesus is saying a little better. So first, we, we see those words, to cause to sin. We see the word temptation there. Um, those are actually all the same word in the Greek. It's the Greek word scandalon. We get our word scandalous from this word. But this isn't the usual word we find for sin and temptation. Those are different Greek words. But here Jesus uses scandalon for causing to sin or temptation. Now what's important to realize there is that this word scandalon really means to stumble. To stumble or to cause another person to stumble. It has the sense of, of sin but more in the sense of leading people away from Christ, for causing them to stumble in their walk with Christ, uh, even in the sense of, of going so far as to deny him. Right? So this, is, this adds a particular flavor to what Jesus is saying here. Um, and the other thing we need to clarify is that we're not talking about literal children anymore. Last week we saw Jesus uh, pull a child into the discussion and use this child as an example. But here in verse 6, Jesus is kind of using that metaphor to describe his disciples. Look at what Jesus says there. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me. That's who these little ones are. They're those who believe in Jesus. They're his disciples, his, his people, his sheep, right? And this is a term of endearment. And so we're not talking about children anymore, but just disciples in general, whether they be young disciples, children, or older disciples. In contrast to receiving the little ones in verse 
5 last week that we saw, Jesus discusses those who would cause these little ones, these disciples, to stumble, to fall into sin. In verses 6 and 7, Jesus is speaking directly towards those who would cause his disciples to turn away from them. Uh, Whoever would trip them up in their discipleship to him, whether on purpose or not. Some little ones, some disciples are stumbled through persecution. Some are stumbled through uh, giving consideration to uh, criticisms or attack of Christ or the gospel. Some are stumbled through uh, counter-apologetics, right? Uh, This is why Jesus isn't the Messiah. This is why Jesus couldn't have risen from the dead. Uh, Some are stumbled through attempts to seduce them back to a former way of sin. There's many different ways that external temptations come upon the disciple of Christ and can lead them to stumble. These are, again, external temptations. They come from the outside, right? That's who Jesus' words are directed towards, people who provide these external sources of temptation. And and Jesus' words here reveal just how seriously he takes the temptation of his disciples. He makes this pronouncement. He says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, to stumble, it would be better for him to have a great millstone tied around his neck and be drowned in the depth of the sea. That's pretty serious, isn't it? This was a Roman method of execution that was so horrible that it was practiced even even more rarely than crucifixion. A horrible way to die. Tying a stone around the neck, then dropping the condemned into the sea. Right, That stone carries them down to the bottom and they drown. And this millstone is no small stone, right? This isn't a pebble. There were two kinds of millstones in the ancient world. There was one that a person could turn right, to grind grain. And then there was one that was so big only a donkey could turn it. Hundreds of pounds. That's the kind Jesus is talking about here. A hundred plus pound stone. There's no way to escape that, right? That is a brutal way to die. And as horrible as this is, Jesus says that this fate is actually better. That that, that would be a merciful way to die in comparison to what God will pour out on those who lead his little ones astray. That to have this millstone tied around your neck and drown in the bottom of the ocean would be merciful compared to to the wrath of God. That's a very serious statement, isn't it? It should make us consider the kind of influence that we have on others, right? Are we leading them closer to Christ or or pushing them further away from Christ? Jesus continues in verse 7. This time he pronounces, Woe to the world. He says, Woe to the world for temptations to sin. One commentator notes that verse 6 refers to individuals who uh, cause disciples to stumble in sin, but verse 7 refers to the entire world, which is characterized by this tempting and stumbling conduct. Now, what is the world? What is the world? It's really just the entire human system. Just just human society at large, right? Which, Which is corrupt. Generally, it's immoral, and it's oriented away from God. Now, it's under Satan's influence to a degree, but um, when we look around us, we we see quite easily that people don't need Satan's help all that much to do really bad things. The Bible describes the world as a constant source of stumbling for Christians. Paul, 
in Romans 12 too, he says, do not be conformed to the world. Why does he say that? Well, because the world has a conforming effect like a Play-Doh mold. Right? Whatever you squeeze it into is what it, what it comes out as. <coughs> it has that sort of effect. And friends, the world does not want to conform you to the image of Jesus. It wants you to conform you it wants to conform you to its own image. Which is why Paul says, do not be stumbled by this. Likewise, the Apostle John writes that we are not to love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. 1 John 2, 15 and 16. Now the world and the things in it have an attractive, alluring effect, which is why we are told not to love those things. Why we're not to run after those things. The desires of the flesh, the eyes, the pride of life, are not those the main areas of temptation? You see, human society is constantly putting forth material goods as worthwhile, as ultimate, as sexual immorality, as exciting and satisfying, beauty and glamour as possible, valuable and lasting. But the world, the human system of value, it promises happiness and satisfaction, but it does so falsely and in a way that is incompatible with Christ Jesus and being his disciple. Right? We live in the world and we can enjoy the blessings of living in God's created realm, but that's very different than loving the world, than loving the things that the world loves. Right? You can't love the world and Christ as you're called to. It's impossible. And we think about the parable of the sower, for example, that Jesus tells in Matthew 13, how the person represented by the thorny soil, they hear the gospel. They hear about Jesus. They say, yeah, this is good. I like this. I'm excited about this. But what happens? Eventually, those thorns creep up and choke it out. Those thorns, the cares of the world, the love of riches, they grow up and they, they choke out the gospel. They choke out that person's love for Christ. And many people have, have let their love for Christ be choked out by their love for the world, even while they profess Christ with their lips. Paul describes one of his associates, Demas, who at one point was a very um, helpful and effective man, right, serving for Christ, but who by the end of Paul's life has deserted him because, as Paul says, he is in love with this present world. As a source of external temptation, the world has certainly led many people away from Christ and Jesus utters judgment against it for that reason. <coughs> but then Jesus says something that we might not expect. In verse 7, he says, It is necessary that temptations come. It is necessary that temptations come. Oh, that it were not so, we groan. Right? We say, Lord, why must it be that way? Why is it necessary? Why do we have to face these things? But Jesus says they are. He says it as plain as day. But why? Why are these stumbling blocks necessary? Well, I think there's a couple reasons. One, we have to realize that temptation is part of the inescapable reality of life in a world that is broken and affected by sin. That's just that's just the fact of life in the world that we live in. There's no escape from temptations. They are unavoidable. They're, they're like these moth-eaten holes in the fabric of the once good world that God made. 
we cannot escape the temptation or the reality of temptation, excuse me, in this current corrupt creation any more than we can escape the rising and setting of the sun. Right? These things are necessary in the sense that they are inevitable. Second, temptations and stumbling blocks are under the sovereignty of God. What does that mean? Well, we know from James 1.13, God himself tempts nobody. God entices nobody to sin. It's very clear. But does God allow and even ordain temptation to happen in the believer's life? Yes. Now, we heard in 1 Corinthians 1, uh, 10.13 that God won't let us be tempted beyond our ability, which means he's setting the boundaries for that temptation, right? He will not let us be tempted beyond our abilities. He's setting the boundaries around it. He is ultimately sovereign over it. Just like he set the boundaries for Satan's temptation of Job. He said, you can do this and this and this, but no further. Temptations are necessary because God has ordained them. But is there a purpose to them? Right? That's the question that, that we really want to know. Is there a purpose for them? Yes, there is a purpose for them. Uh, stumbling blocks are under God's sovereignty, right? But God does nothing without a purpose. God allows nothing without a purpose and without a reason and without a greater good that he will bring from that. Uh, chapter 5 of the London Baptist Confession lives Four helpful purposes. I, I love this. This is so good. It says, The perfectly wise, righteous, and gracious God often allows his own children for a time to experience a variety of temptations and the sinfulness of their own hearts. He does this to chastise them from their former sins, right? Sometimes we need that correction, right? Where we haven't dealt with sins in the past and he brings them to mind so that we deal with them and we're humbled by them. He allows us to be tempted to make us aware of the hidden strength of the corruption and deceitfulness of our own hearts so that we may be humbled. He allows us to be tempted to lead us to a closer and more constant dependence on him to sustain us. He allows us to be tempted to make us more cautious about all future circumstances that may lead to sin. Well, those are good purposes, aren't they? All of those reasons there are reasons that bring us closer to God that actually help us to walk in obedience to him. God allows us to be tempted to show us that we <laughs> have sinful hearts, right? That we are corrupt, that we are weak, that we need him all the more. That's what we forget when we run headlong into temptation, isn't it? And so God reminds us, he lets us taste the bitterness of sin at times. That we would be reminded, as we heard from Psalm 34, how good the Lord is, how sweet he is. And that we would go, oh, yeah, I don't, ugh, get that out of my mouth. I want the honey of God's goodness, not the bitterness of sin. So Christian, though we bewail temptation, we ask God not to lead us into temptation. We can know temptations are necessary, but that God won't allow us to be tempted beyond our ability. But what he allows us to be tempted by, we can face by his grace. We can know that while this world may be at work for our stumbling and our, our temptation, God is at work for our good. God's at work to draw us nearer to him. So take comfort in that. But at the same time, even though God is sovereign and purposeful in what he allows in our lives, does Jesus let these external sources of temptation off the hook? Absolutely not. He says, woe to the world. Woe to the one by whom temptation comes. And this may bring us to ask, is, is God fair to do this? 
right? If, if God is sovereign over the temptations that happen in our life, uh, then is he fair to hold those sources of temptation accountable? And the answer is yes. The answer is yes. Uh, think of Job, right? God ordained and allowed Job to be tempted, yet Satan was held accountable. God ordained and allowed Judas to betray Jesus, and yet Judas was held accountable. God ordained the, the prideful nation of Assyria to rise up against Israel as an instrument of his judgment, but in Isaiah 10, he declares judgment on Assyria's pride. And so we have to understand God's sovereignty in no way, shape, or form removes responsibility from sinful man's hands or removes responsibility from the world being a source of temptation. Uh, those who lead others into sin and away from Christ are 100% responsible for what they do. Right, God doesn't make them or compel them to tempt others, but he will hold them accountable for it. And so Jesus pronounces woe and judgment upon external sources of temptation. But not all temptation comes from the outside. Much of it comes from the inside too. And that's what we see in verses 8 and 9, the war against internal temptation. Now Jesus turns to the disciples themselves now, speaking of the, the enemy within. Uh, the teaching of Jesus that we find in verses 8 and 9 should sound familiar because it's very close to what Jesus taught all the way back in Matthew 6 uh, about lust. But now the teaching has been extended to all sin of all kinds, every temptation. There's no woes pronounced in these verses, but there is a sober warning about the necessity to deal with the temptation that comes from inside of us. In these verses, verses 8 and 9, Jesus begins to refer to body parts. He says, if your hand or your foot or your eye cause you to sin. Right, that's the scenario. Your, your, your hand, your foot, your eye causes you to stumble, causes you to sin. Now, can our body parts literally do this? No, right? We're not like, ah, no, don't do that hand. You know, they don't have that kind of uh, autonomy or control, right? Um, these are just references, metaphors for temptation that come from within us. Now, Christians uh, often blame Satan and the world for temptation, and, and rightly so. Um, but sometimes we can be a little too slow not to point the finger here as far as where temptation is coming from. Right? From, from us. That's what Jesus is talking about. Your hand, your foot, your eye. In other words, the temptation that comes from within you. And James 1, 14 and 15 uh, paints this for us in vivid terms. James says, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. Do you see the origin point there? Each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. His own desire. Where does that come from? Inside of us. That comes from our, our flesh, our old nature, right? Many of the things that tempt people are, are either neutral, like food, right? Food's not inherently bad. Um, or things that are evil, right? Uh, like pornography. Yet it's our sinful flesh. It's our desire that inappropri inappropriately and... In, <laughs> that's a tongue twister. Inappropriately and inordinately draws us towards these things, right? Sometimes we desire a good thing too much. Sometimes we desire a good thing too much. Other times we desire a sinful thing that we should not desire at all. 
Yet James is clear, even when the world and Satan may tempt us from the outside, our own flesh entices us and lures us as well. It's not an accident that Peter writes that the passions of the flesh wage war against our souls. That's the reality, friends. We must not underestimate the danger of our own sinful flesh. Right? It's, it's our flesh that lies and tells us that gossip is good, that sharing that little bit of juicy information about another person will elevate us. It's our flesh that lies and tells us, hey, drunkenness is good. It'll give us comfort. It'll give us fun. It's our flesh that lies and tells us that we're, you know, we're right. We should be angry about this, and we have the right to vent it all out there. It's our flesh that tells us eating more will bring us solace. It, it's our flesh that tells us that um, we, we need to be anxious about this. Look at all the news stories that are going on, right? We should be anxious. Does God have this handled? So what happens when our flesh tempts us to sin? What happens when our flesh tempts us to sin? What do we do when our hand, our foot, our eye causes us to stumble and leads us into temptation? How do we escape? Because the, the Bible tells us that God will not let us tempted without giving, let us be tempted without giving us a way of escape. He will. So what is that way of escape? Well, Jesus gives us two very simple steps. Number one, he says, if your hand or your foot causes you to sin or if your eye causes you to sin, cut it off. Pluck it out. Cut it off. Pluck it out. Now, some have taken this literally. They have actually done this. They have amputated their hands or their eyes. That's not what Jesus wants you to do. Do not, do not, do not do that. This is figurative, right? It's figurative language here. But consider the imagery for a moment. It is extreme, and it should be. Uh, your hand, your foot, your eye, it's given life by your body. Right? It's attached to you, blood flows to it, it's animated by being attached to your nervous system, right? But as soon as it's cut off, that body part ceases to function by itself. It has no effect on your body at all. It's just disconnected from you completely. And eventually it dies. Jesus is likewise speaking here of cutting it off, to have no connection to it, to have nothing to do with those things that lead us to sin. Remove your connection to those things. If you're tempted to drunkenness, cut off the bar and the bottle. If you're tempted to lust, tear out your technology. If you're tempted to gossip, you may need to remove those relationships that encourage you to gossip. If you're tempted to anxiety about current events, turn off the news station. Cut it off, tear it out, Jesus says. Now, this isn't to say that simply removing these things um, at, at the surface level, right, is the answer, right? Because where, where does true change happen? In the heart, right? Killing sin ultimately happens at the heart. But what Jesus is being very clear about is that if, if you are not willing to do simple and hard things, unless you are willing to undergo some self-denial in denying your flesh, you will never change at all. You will never change at all. You will never have victory over sin. Cut it off, he says. And as a side note, we, we need to remember that our motivation in cutting off those sources of sin matters very much. Do you, do you view sin as just an inconvenience? Right? Do you see sin as just something that's holding you back from full functionality, right? from your full potential? Um, li listen to the words of the great Puritan John Owen. He says, we must hate all sin as sin. 
not just as that which troubles us. Love for Christ because he went to the cross and hate for sin that sent him there is the solid foundation for true spiritual mortification. Right? That's an old word for putting the flesh to death. To seek mortification only because a sin troubles us proceeds from self-love. There's a lot of wisdom there, right? If we're just wanting to cut off this hand because it's kind of inconvenient and, and it makes our life more difficult, we're doing that just because we love ourselves and want our life to be easier. No, we must be willing to cut off that hand or that foot or pluck out that eye because we see sin is horrible. It's what caused the Lord of glory to be crucified. And because we love Him all the more. That motivation matters. And motivation matters because if it is not love for Christ and hatred for sin that causes us to cut off that hand, then we will be very, very quick to run back and try to sew that hand back on. We must cut off that hand, that foot, tear out that eye, not because we want the sin gone, but because we hate the sin and we love the Christ who died for that sin. Any other foundation or motivation will just cause us to just scratch a little at the hand, just scratch a little at the eye, rather than taking the great acts of God's grace and chopping it off in one swing. So first, Jesus says we must cut that sin off. We must be willing to get rid of those things that tempt us and that arouse our flesh once and for all. We have to get them out of here. And in line with that, the second thing Jesus says is throw it away. He doesn't say cut it off and put it in this great glass case that you can look at it. He doesn't say cut it off and keep it around for a while or put it in the fridge. He says throw it away. Get rid of it. We must not only sever that sin, but discard it forever. We must say it has no value to me. I want nothing to do with it anymore. I'm throwing it in the garbage heap. Now, some Christians are willing to deny themselves for a time or to a degree, but then they go back to their temptations. Some Christians are initially willing to cut off a hand or a foot, but, but again, after some time, they go back to the doctor and they say, hey, can you reattach this for me? But what does Jesus say? He says, throw it away. Don't go back to it. Get far away from it. But, but some might say, well, my life would be really difficult if I had to cut all those temptations out of my life. Things would be really hard for me if I had to tear that temptation out of my life. I'd be greatly inconvenienced if I had to cut this off and throw that stumbling block away. Yes, that's probably true. That's probably true. Now, after all, a hand, a foot, an eye, are those not important parts of the body? Jesus doesn't say if your fingernail or your third toe or your eyelash causes you to sin, pluck it out. What cost is there in that? No, Jesus is certainly aware that sometimes a source of sin and temptation is precious to us. And that to cut it off or tear it out and throw it away would be costly. Jesus recognizes that. But he doesn't soften the force of what he says. In fact, he actually goes further. Look at what he says in the second half of verse 8 and verse 9. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. Or it is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell 
of fire. Now, this has been a pretty serious discourse from Jesus, and it, I think, reaches its most serious point here. Yes, Jesus commands us to cut off that hand or that foot or that, that eye, that thing near and dear to us that tempts us to sin. And he makes clear that the cost of not doing so is great. The cost of doing so may, may be great, but the cost of not doing so is even greater. Jesus really gives his disciples, he gives us two options. Option number one is you repent of your sin. You cut it off, you throw it away, you fight against it and do all you can by the Spirit's power to put it to death. And, and you may lack some things in this life as a result. You may have to make some sacrifices. You may have some suffering, some self-denial as a result. But what does Jesus say? He says, you will enter into life. Sure, maybe you're going to miss a hand or a foot or an eye, but you're going to enter into eternal life, figuratively speaking. Right? The disciple of Jesus, in other words, is commanded to repent and resist sin constantly. But there is that promise of eternal life at the end of the struggle. That's option number one. Repent of your sin daily. Doing what you need to do to cut off that hand. Pluck out that eye. But you have the assurance of your salvation before you. Option number two is you live life however you want. You don't need to worry about that eye or that foot or that hand. So what if they tempt you to sin? It's, it's no big deal. They won't cause you that much trouble. It's not a big deal to just follow them down that pathway, you know. No need to go to that extreme of amputation. And that way your whole body can enter into hell. In one piece. Jesus is clear. If you do nothing to resist sin and temptation now, if you do nothing to repent of sin now, you have no assurance of heaven. But in fact, a better assurance of hell. This is not works-based salvation, but it's simply the reality that Christians repent of sin. An unrepentant Christian is an oxymoron. If you are unwilling to kill your pet sin, that tiger that you cuddle up with when nobody is looking, it will eventually consume you, body and soul, and you will be cast into hell. A Christian, by definition, is someone who, because of a changed heart, because of grace, repents of sin, who will eventually turn away from that particular sin. But if you, if you don't ever turn away from your sin, but you profess the name of Christ, your profession is a sham. It's, a, it's fake. And your foot, your hand, your, your eye will lead you to hell. And, and Jesus is clear here, hell is not a figurative place. It is not the place where God is absent or where there's only silence or isolation or all these other ideas that people come up with to soften the biblical doctrine of hell. Jesus is clear about the nature of hell here. It is a place of eternal fire, a place where the flames of God's righteous and just wrath burn against sin forever and ever. And if you love your sin and do not cut it off and do not throw it away, then you have no claim to Christ. And if you have no claim to Christ, then you have no advocate to plead His sacrifice on your behalf. And if you have no advocate, no Savior, then you have nothing to keep you from hell. Nothing to keep you from the eternal wrath of God poured out on the sin that you refuse to repent of. And if you think that eternal fiery punishment of sin is too extreme, then friend, you think too little of sin 
and too little of God's holiness and far too much of yourself. Sin is so horrific and God is so holy that hell is perfectly just. And friends, shouldn't that make you want to cut off that hand or foot or eye all the more to know that this is how much God hates sin? To say this is what he has prescribed for those who will not repent of their sin? Does this not put sin in its proper perspective? Why would you want such a thing near you at all? Don't exchange a life of momentary and fleeting pleasures for an eternity in hell. But friends, there's an escape from hell. God has sent his son, Jesus Christ, who never sinned a moment in his life. He lived a perfect life. He obeyed all of God's commands. He never sinned once. And do you know why he came? He came that after living a perfect life, he would die the death of all of his people, bearing every single one of our hell-deserving sins. Every moment we gave in to temptation, he bore that on his shoulders in our place as a substitute. He willingly suffered the very wrath of God that would have been poured out in hell upon us. He said, I will endure that for their sake. My love for sinners, says Jesus Christ, is so great that I will endure this, that they would be spared it. And then three days later, he rose from the dead, proving he had fully paid for our sins once and for all, and securing for us that eternal life he speaks of in these verses. And now God's commanded people everywhere. He's commanded you and me to repent of our sins and to turn to Jesus Christ, the Savior he's provided, believing he is the Son of God, and trusting him to save us from hell. God loves you so much, he gave up his own son for you. Rather than see you sin your way to hell. That is an incomprehensible love. I can't fathom giving up one of my own children for any of you. No offense. I can't, I can't even comprehend that. And I love you guys. And God gave up his only son for his enemies. Oh, friends, we can never doubt the love of God. It's proven for us in Christ Jesus. And if you are outside of Christ, if you're not a Christian today, behold the Savior God has provided and turn to him. Turn to him. For those of you that are Christians, the gospel is crucial for us to remember in light of our own fight against sin and temptation, right? You know, we, we make a mistake when we turn fighting against sin into just don't do that, it's bad. And if you do it, you're a bad person and a bad Christian. And that's the end of the discussion. That's not, that's not helpful. Where's Christ in that? We need to remember Jesus Christ died because of our sin and that we should not ever try to go back to sow on the very thing that led him to the cross. I think Paul captures it perfectly. <clears throat> Romans chapter 6, What fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now, 
Christian, listen, but now you have been set free from sin. You have become slaves of God and the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. What fruit were you getting from giving into temptation? What fruit were you getting from being a slave to sin? Rotten fruit, horrible fruit, disgusting fruit. But what is the fruit that you get now by resisting temptation, by walking with Christ? The fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of sanctification, the fruit of knowing Jesus Christ and not having that sin hindering your fellowship with Him or hindering the assurance of your salvation. The fruit of joy, of peace, of patience, of goodness, of gentleness, of self-control, of love. That's the fruit we get. And that's not even as good as just knowing Jesus Christ and having fellowship with Him, is it not? Why would we give that up for the the momentary fleeting pleasures of sin when God has given us so much better in Christ Jesus? The brother or sister cut off that gangrenous hand, throw it away, and enjoy the far better fruit of sanctification and its end, eternal life all of which is richly provided for you in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Oh, our Lord and our God, how gracious you are. Lord, we thank you that you promise us that you will never let us be tempted beyond our ability to resist. And we, we, we know, Lord, that even that ability is empowered by your grace. But you've given us your word. You've given us your spirit. You've given us Christ Jesus, your son. Lord, what greater resources could we ask for? What greater joys could we seek? What greater delights could we have than the ones that are found in our Lord? And so, my God, I pray that you would help us not even to hesitate about cutting off that hand or that foot that we would say, Christ is so much better, it's not even a question. Oh, Lord, would you help us to see Christ in his glory and his goodness, to taste and see that he is good, and that our love for him would be greater than our our love for our sin, but that, Lord, you would show us and, and help us to see sin and temptation for what it really is. Dung. Vileness. And, Lord, in comparison to that, that Christ would be all the more sweet. Father, we pray that you would give us strength for the battle with sin and temptation, whether it be external or internal. But Lord, that as we resist temptation day by day, that we would taste the sweetness of that fruit, of sanctification, of becoming more like Christ. Oh Lord, may he be, may he be our greatest treasure and our greatest delight. We pray all of this In his precious name, amen.